Welcome to the Green Majority. Thank you so much for listening. We are Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, and we're broadcast here out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. That's what we're calling it. Or on uh, many local radio community stations, also in Canada. Or on a podcast platform, those, those wonderful podcast platforms. Gotta love those podcast platforms. And I'm David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And we're your Green Majority hosts. Thanks so much for joining us today. From, from wherever you are. Indeed. And we have environmental news. And then Stefan is going to interview Chris Gusson from 350.org about their petition of the Canadian government, Mr. Justin Trudeau. And then Stefan is going to speak with Matthew Klippenstein, a, is he an energy expert, technology expert? Sure. He's just a dude. I mean, he is an engineer. He, he does work in technology. And they're going to be talking about new carbon technology. Climate technology. Climate technology. Yeah. That's even more exotic. Beautiful. But first, uh, Lauren is going to mention something about the scourge of e-scooters as well as wildfires, and Stefan is going to say something about the Chinese carbon market. Yeah, so as we sometimes do on this show, we talk about random stuff, whatever we want to talk about off the top. And what I am thinking about this week are two things, one of which, kind of silly if I'm going to be honest, I totally wiped out on an e-scooter, on an electric scooter this weekend, going like 25 kilometers an hour in an area that I shouldn't have been. And yes, it was very fun. And yes, it was a good, relatively low carbon mode of active transportation. And it's great that they're being rolled out in cities across so-called Canada. But I do feel that the way in which we're doing it is unsafe, isn't great for accessibility of our cities, and just doesn't take infrastructure limitations into account. And that's not good. And I feel like it's an example of like a potential mini climate solution, but that just isn't being rolled out thoughtfully and carefully and therefore isn't sustainable and probably won't be a lasting sort of like addition to our cities. So that's something I'm thinking about. And I'm thinking about it namely because I have like scabs on my knees, like I'm a 10 year old at summer camp and it's really embarrassing. The other thing I'm thinking about is far more serious. I'm thinking about how one of my colleagues um, who is very dear to me literally had to have her kids pack up emergency go bags the other night in case they had to evacuate their home because forest fires are so close to where they live in, in Kenora in Northern Ontario. The surrounding area where they live is a tinderbox right now. They've had barely any rain. It's devastatingly hot every day and has been for weeks. And these heat waves, these these forest fires that are happening all over the country, all over the world, we've seen a number of stories or, or I've seen a number of stories passed around just today, today being Wednesday when we record Uh, one from The Guardian and one from The New York Times about how like parts of the Amazon have become net producers of carbon as opposed to sinks because they're in such distress, similar to what we've seen in Canada in recent years with these runaway forest fire seasons. And and I'm just sort of sitting with this realization today that, well, not the realization, but with with the notion today that, that like this is what we're in for at minimum in the coming years and decades for the rest of my life, at least, is going to be these elongated forest fire seasons um, and how devastating that is not just from an ecosystem and ecology standpoint and the loss of, of lives of billions of non-human animals, but the, the very real ways in which it impacts somebody's quality of life and somebody's mental health and somebody's physical and, and, uh, and financial well-being as well. So yeah, a bit of a heavy thought there, but um, what about you, Steph? 
just quickly on on that, I I think there's a we talk about this a couple times throughout the show. Uh, the new 350 campaign that Chris will speak about is is literally called On Fire, and it stems a little bit from our conversation that we had last week. And Chris was one of the people who graciously gave us some suggestions as how you could join the climate movement. And I'll say, if you're looking, if you listened to last week's show and you're still looking for more uh, advice of that nature or more sort of things of nature, Heated, which is Emily Atkins' climate. Uh, newsletter had a very good newsletter out. I believe it was earlier this week or last week, specifically about again what can you do, and her answer is anything, because we need everything. But what I'm thinking about is slightly more positive. I'm not going to say it's a huge positive news, but I think it's a little bit more positive, which is that it's expected that this week, likely on Friday when you're listening to this, that China's national carbon market will officially go live. It's been delayed since the June 30th deadline, which is why they're not entirely certain if it will actually go online at that point, but it's expected to. And it will cover more than 2,200 companies in China's power sector and will eventually... grow to include other high emission things like steel manufacturing and cement. This will work very similar to other carbon markets in which there'll be a certain amount of credits given out to these companies. They, if they go under, they'll be able to sell them to uh, to these other com- to other companies that need more and that le- limit will slightly go down. The reason why it's not huge like this is obviously big news. This is it's a massive market. It's four, will cover 14% of the world's carbon just from this one country's com- and because of how coal dependent China is. That said, when carbon markets are such as early stage, they often don't actually have much of an impact at all because there's enough credits floating around that it doesn't actually increase the cost of using any of these high carbon intensive things. So they're not actually expecting to see a very significant increase uh, or decrease of China's emissions because of this carbon tax or price on carbon early on, but it is infrastructure. You know, in the same way that, you know, Bill C12 is infrastructure to improve Canada's market, having this infrastructure in set in means that they can now begin to raise the price of uh, or they can now begin to decrease the amount of emission credits they're giving, which is then the way you can actually then push these things down. So it is not, I'm not going to say this is world changing right now. It is a big, big, big market of carbon that's being covered. And so something to pay attention to. And if they decide to ramp up action quickly, then that's going to be real, uh, real news. But keep an eye on that. Now for some news headlines. The Penelicut tribe has discovered over 160 unmarked graves near the former Cooper Island Residential School in British Columbia. Many of the dead were not documented by the school. This is only the latest discovery in what will be a long process of exhuming the unmarked burial sites of the thousands of children our country systematically kidnapped and killed. Patrick White reports for the Globe and Mail, quote, A host of children tried to escape Cooper Island Indian Residential School, located on what is now known as Penelicut Island. By piloting makeshift watercraft over the choppy waters that separated it, from southeastern Vancouver Island. 
the attempts were desperate bids to escape abuse and malnutrition. Some children died trying to escape, and others were severely beaten for attempting to escape. The last residential school in Canada closed less than 25 years ago. Our foster care system, by which Indigenous children are seized by the state, is a continuation of this genocidal legacy. Our fossil fuel economy is also continuing this legacy, as the Canadian company Enbridge continues to battle the Indigenous land and water protectors who oppose the rebuilding and expansion of the Line 3 tar sands pipeline in Minnesota. In training, buying equipment for, and compensating local police, it's been suggested that Enbridge is applying counterinsurgency tactics of the kind used at Standing Rock to brand water protectors as religious insurgents and justify brutal measures. This pipeline fight so far has not come to that kind of state violence. The Canadian company Recon Africa is currently drilling various test wells in sensitive ecosystems in Botswana and Namibia, specifically the Okavango River Basin, which flows into the Okavango Delta, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and part of a conservation area that expands parts of Angola, Botswana, Namibia, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Several publications have called this the world's most exciting oil play, and James Stafford writes for OilPrice.com, quote, A daring junior oil and gas explorer has set out to put the African country of Namibia, which has never produced a single barrel of oil, on the world's energy map in a wildcat drill campaign that has taken many by surprise. Local environmental activists are concerned that such profit and progress-obsessed corporate imperialism will poison the underground water that everyone there relies upon. In addition, Interpress Service quotes an unnamed conservationist as stating, quote, If this company is allowed to start drilling for oil in the Delta, it will be a major environmental crime with inevitably devastating impacts on the natural world. In terms of what it will mean for elephants, until we know the scale of the operation, it's hard to estimate exactly, but history shows that oil extraction always means environmental disaster, and this is right in the middle of the last wilderness in the elephant's last stronghold. Climate and energy consultant Jeff Stiles writes for the National Observer that since a Canadian court ruled four years ago that the Canadian company Tahoe Resources was liable for human rights violations in Guatemala, a reckoning might also be coming for Recon Africa, since a team of South African-based environmental lawyers are arguing that, quote, the Recon project is in contravention with the provisions and spirit and purport of the Paris Agreement, and that it would also place a larger burden on developed countries like Canada to financially assist Namibia in the mitigation of carbon emissions during and subsequent to the project. Canada might therefore be held liable for the carbon emissions caused by this project. A new poll from Abacus Data, commissioned by Iron and Earth, has found that a majority of Canadian oil and gas workers favor pivoting to net zero by 2050 and believe that they will thrive in that economy. So I'm just going to quote now from Jennifer Rankin's article in The Guardian about the new European Union plan uh, deal to fight climate change. 
So in their new revised plan, EU member states will face tougher greenhouse gas reduction targets and goals to increase renewable energy by 2030. The EU as a whole will aim to get 40% of its energy from renewable sources by the end of the decade. Uh, they're aiming for 55% emissions reductions from 1990 levels by 2030. Pollution will become more expensive for electricity generators and heavy industry under the European Commission's uh, under the European Emissions Trading System. The emissions trading system cap on emissions will be tightened. Free allowances will be phased out from 2030 onwards, slowly driving up the cost of pollution. Foreign companies importing steel, aluminum, and other carbon-intensive products into the EU will have to buy allowances to sell their goods into the European single market. The carbon border adjustment mechanism is intended to protect EU companies from losing out to more lightly regulated rivals. A new emissions trading system would be set up by 2025 for fuel producers supplying buildings and road transport. To head off critics' war warning of higher energy bills, the EU executive wants to create a 144.4 billion euro fund to help pay uh, to help people pay for energy efficient upgrades to their homes and greener cars with 72 billion euros coming from the EU budget. And finally, after years of slow progress, the European Union will overhaul what officials call its outdated energy taxation law to phase out tax breaks for fossil fuels in EU aviation and shipping. Touching first on Recon Africa and what's going on, it is morally bankrupt for Canada to offshore our emissions this way plain and simple. Um, and I would really hope that in a carbon that in any carbon accounting schemes that might be developed at the international level, that Canada would have to account for these emissions and include them in our carbon inventory. Whether or not this will end up being the case, I do not know. I am not smart enough or knowledgeable enough to be able to answer that question. But like it is, it is my hope that in situations like this, it would be our responsibility to account for those and include them in our, in, in our inventory. Further to that, it's, um, it's throwing me back to um, an announcement that came out earlier this week on Monday. Canada tabled, published, submitted our, our NDC, our nationally determined contribution to um, the UNFCCC and the Paris Accord, solidifying that our that our contribution would be an emissions reduction of, of 40 to 45% below 2005 levels by 2030. We've talked a gazillion times about how this, this is an insufficient target, but just to sort of reiterate it and go into why it has any effects or why it's um, why it in any way ties into this recon Africa story and, and us sort of being accountable for those offshore emissions. There are several organizations who have been behind the push for Canada to adopt uh, what's called a, a fair share emissions reduction target. It's been highly publicized that this means reduction of 60% over 2005 levels by 2030. What's less prominently talked about is the second half of that fair share target, which is the international portion of that target, which would see a further reduction of 80% below 2005 levels by 2030. So, so that means two things. The first um, is that it means that Canada really, in order to be sort of accounting for our historical emissions and contributions that way and our, and our exorbitant level of wealth, um, that our emissions reduction by 2030 should really be more so in line with 140% by 2030. Um, so that's taking into account the 60% domestically and the 80% internationally. 
It also means that in, with that 80% internationally, that Canada needs to support emissions reductions um, in the form of various projects in other countries and in financial contributions to other countries. And what isn't included in that at the end of the day is a massive mine like this, like this one that's 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 being implemented or being um, proposed by Recon Africa, a Canadian company. So that was a really, really roundabout way of just saying that like, we can't afford something like this from a carbon budgeting standpoint as a nation, as a planet at the end of the day. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen that kind of willful ignorance um, across the, the Western world, you know, or I believe it was early this week or last week, the UK cut, you know, support for reducing emissions overseas, which is going to, which is incredibly important because they are the host country of COP26, where international climate financing is going to be perhaps the biggest topic. When we're talking about these plans that pe- that countries keep putting in place, like the EU plan that was mentioned, like the Canada plan, um, or like any other uh, any other Western country, a big part of this has to be include support for other nations doing this work and you cannot be supporting a massive mine during this time you just can't do it yeah it would it would discount any positive effort it would were this mine to go in maybe not specifically like i haven't crunched the numbers we all know i'm not a numbers person but like in effect supporting and implementing a project like this would would cancel out any any awesome climate finance contributions that have been announced in recent months right like it's it's if we're if we're talking from a net zero standpoint it it doesn't it doesn't equal out it doesn't come out in the wash the way i think we are being told it would be or the way the way the government would hope it would yeah or yeah exactly or we can just ignore it because it's not happening on our soil right so the the last cop that happened that was in 2019 right yes they canceled 2020 yeah that was a disaster, correct? It was like a, yeah, yeah. a bit of a, I was, a, a, yeah, it was a mess. And it seemed like the reason it was such a mess, or the reason, and the reason nobody could agree upon anything was mostly it was the wealthier countries saying, we don't want to finance climate mitigation in less wealthy countries. Wasn't that the main contention? Something that I believe was supposed to be sorted out in COP25, yes, back in 2019, was this this thing called Article Six, which determines international carbon markets, and it wasn't agreed upon. They they couldn't they couldn't come to a final solution because of basically what you said, David, is that wealthy Western nations don't want to be on the hook for for something like this. And so that was the main that was the main issue last time, right? And you're and you're saying that the British Britain, which is hosting the the new this year's COP, right, mm-hmm. has cut their foreign funding going ahead leading into this 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 new one right? yes and and one of the three so there's four main goals of this cop that's coming up um one is secure global net zero by mid-century to keep 1.5 degrees in within reach of course global net zero doesn't make any sense as a complete aside where is the net coming from that but i'm going to leave that one off the off the conversation table for now adapt to protect communities and natural habits. And the third one is mobilize finance. And what the goal was, was to re- get to a- mobilize at least $100 billion uh, developed countries. To, the, the exact sentence is, to deliver on our first two goals, the developed countries must take make good on their promise to mobilize at least $100 billion in climate finance per year by 2020. And again, this goal was designed for last year's COP that got posted this year, and so we're already a year behind on this plan. But it's $100 billion that's being accounted for, and we're already seeing some nations sort of pull back 
on even their paltry offerings previously. Yeah. And and it it should be pointed out that a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, Canada did announce an increase in its car, in its climate finance contribution, which is great. It was it was I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was it was in line with what had been demanded and asked for by sort of the climate community over the last few years. So so that was a positive thing. But like we said at the end of the day, if it, it, it doesn't matter how much money we're throwing at the issue, if we then turn around and pull stunts like this with Recon Africa. I do want to briefly talk about that study uh, that Iron Earth put out and the just transition. A, to note the fact that I believe it was three years ago that the Liberal government promised us a just transition act, and they are going to go into now another uh, election before giving us it at all. So thanks for for that Liberal government. It would be lovely if you followed up on that promise. Um, but What's fascinating here is, A, this is like incredibly high numbers from people who work in the oil and gas sector saying that they are, they're interested. There was another quote uh, number within that, which was that 90% of, of workers believed that they could transfer into another job within a year, which is a huge number, um, along with the support. And I did a little bit of digging to to look, and it pulled out the uh, the Center for Policy Alternatives report that they released in April about a just transition. They sort of outline some 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 very specific propose they, they create a proposed legislation that would include enshrining a fundamental just transition principles, rights and definitions, establish a just transition commission to oversee and guide the government's transition agenda, establish a just transition benefit to support workers in affected communities, establish an economic diversification crown corporation to invest in job creating prospects in affected communities, establish a just transition training fund that ensures access for historically marginalized groups to employment in the lower carbon economy, and establish a new federal, provincial, territorial just transition transfer to deliver funding for those for these no, new social programs. So that is obviously a robust framework. This is not just sort of the small version of a just transition framework. It's a pretty robust ask. It would definitely cost a fair amount of money. In fact, the center itself says it will cost $16.5 billion a year. Pretty solid amount of money for this cost. Where might they find that, you might ask? Well, do I have good news for you, listeners? Turns out, last year, Canada spent $18 billion subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. That means we would save money if we just cut all subsidies to fossil fuels and invested in what would definitely be a very robust plan to help these people in those industries transition off it. Pivoting from that back to the this polling that was released um, and the story that I, I that I think all of us have read and are referencing in National Observer, it's like oil and gas workers are ready for this transition to happen. And and what I really need is for this story to be more widely publicized than just published in the National Observer. National Observer is great. We love it so much. Read it all the time. Reference it all the time. It's fantastic. But I do need this to be on mainstream news, like. CTV 6 p.m. news that's broadcast all across the country because this polling and this information has the potential to be like paradigm shifting, busting like wide open that myth that oil and gas workers are married to their industry when like most of us, they're not married to an industry. What they're married to is like a reliable, comfortable income, stable work, and the ability to provide for their families. Like for too long in this country, we've accepted this myth that oil and gas workers don't want change. 
and are afraid to take a chance on something better. And what this information, what this polling proves to us is that this isn't the case, that oil and gas workers are as ready for a better way of life as anyone else. And like, frankly, they're smart enough and close enough to the ground to see the writing on the wall. We just need to, we need to get ahead of the catastrophe of like the bottom falling out of the oil and gas industry and get ahead of that boom bust cycle. Um, that is a resource economy we've just accepted as inevitable. And, and what we're learning here in this polling is that the workers are ready for it. They just need the resources. They just need the means. And that's what like a plan, like, like what was laid out by the CCPA, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, has done. And what theoretically this promised Just Transition Act should do. We are excited to be joined by Chris Gusson, the digital organizer for 350 Canada, to talk about their new campaign, On Fire. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, Stefan. So before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about the directness of the name. So the first question seems a little silly, but it does give you a chance to elaborate. What inspired this campaign? Yes, it is a very direct name. Canada is literally on fire right now. So we were inspired to launch this campaign because this wildfire season is unprecedented, as your listeners will be well aware. We're on track for what could be one of the worst wildfire seasons in history. Already two and a half times more land has burned than in the 2018 fire season, which was the last one where BC declared a state of emergency. And we think that we're on track for worse. The heat and climate change has supercharged this wildfire season. So it's a response to what's happening and what people are talking about, what people are scared about and what they're experiencing. But we also know that as far as communicating about climate change and climate impact, wildfires and heat are something that Canadians feel the most in terms of connecting a climate impact to the crisis. So studies have shown that people make that connection. And while the media doesn't always do a good job of connecting climate to these wildfires, that is happening more. So this is a great chance for us to connect the dots for the public between the impacts they're feeling and fossil fuel expansion. So the media will often nowadays make that light connection to climate change. We're going to make that next connection, which is that it's fossil fuel expansion that is causing these fires. The other reason why we're doing this campaign now is there's probably going to be a federal election soon. So people have COVID on their minds still. They have economic recovery and jobs on their minds. This is an opportunity to make sure that climate is a top election issue and that we're pushing all of the parties to offer real solutions to Canada being literally on fire. And so the campaign directly calls out Trudeau and the Liberals for their inaction. And yet there's still definitely, and I'm sure we'll see as this election begins, the push by the federal government to say, no, look, look at all the stuff we've done. We've got this covered. We're taking this seriously. And yet obviously that is out of step with, I think, what most environmental activists see as necessary. And so I'm curious how you see the current government delaying action on climate. Yeah, and that is a big challenge. People like us understand that the government is not doing enough, but the general public in Canada, about 70% of Canadians think that the Liberals are doing enough on climate. So that's a huge communication challenge. So really, their approach, the way I talk to people about it who are not totally steeped in this, is they're undermining every positive thing that they're doing. So they're continuing to subsidize the fossil fuel industry to the tune of billions. They're building pipelines. They're still approving new projects. Even things that seem green, like giving the billion dollars to the oil and gas industry last year for orphan well cleanup, that's a subsidy. And the recent headlines about that 
are showing that those firms didn't even use that money for orphan well cleanup. They just pocketed it. So they are undermining everything that they're doing. Uh, they're still allowing fossil fuel expansion to happen in Canada when even the International Energy Agency longtime booster of oil and gas is saying that needs to stop now. So in the simplest terms, if we're going to transition, let's transition. We've got to move as fast as possible. And ultimately, we need a wartime style mobilization to transform our economy. The liberals are not offering that, but it's very dangerous because unlike someone like Jason Kenney, they talk the talk about climate and they present their inadequate action as if it's enough. So that's arguably more dangerous than outright climate denial. Climate delay is the new denial. Right. And so a thing that I've heard a fair amount more recently, and I think this is you know, quite true, is that a big part of moving on and moving to better is providing that vision for what adequate action is by telling people what it would actually look like, letting people imagine themselves within this experience. And so from your perspective, what would comprehensive and adequate action look like? Yeah. So the, the On Fire campaign has two central demands. The first one is a moratorium on new fossil fuel approvals and a freeze on fossil fuel projects under construction, like the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, so again, it's that firm that you and your life and your well-being is more valuable than the profits of these oil companies. We have to explicitly say that we are making that transition. So that's demand number one. Uh, second demand is just transition legislation uh, to support impacted workers and communities, and especially Indigenous and remote communities. So I guess that second demand is more related to your question, which is, what is this positive vision that people are seeing themselves in? So we need the government to actually start doing the hard stuff, not just talking about building rail or investing in public transit, but saying, no, we're going to stop developing fossil fuels. But in terms of the positive vision, the just transition is something that Trudeau promised. So in 2019, he said he would pass a just transition act that would support workers as we accelerate away from fossil fuels. And so that just transition vision is something that people can get excited about and that I'm really excited in my role as a digital organizer to do more storytelling around. People don't want jobs that destroy the planet. The news that really blew my mind this week was University of Calgary is temporarily suspending, hopefully permanently suspending their oil and gas engineering undergrad. So clearly, even folks steeped in this oil culture, steeped in this mythology of that being where you go for a good job and a good career are rejecting that now. And so they're looking for an alternative. And it's such an exciting thing is I think once we get this, we're stuck right now with people on the right saying we need to keep going, plowing forward with pipelines. Maybe they're saying there's no such thing as climate change. The liberals are trying to somehow uh, reconcile these two irreconcilable things. But once we actually say, no, we're not developing new fossil fuels, there's going to be this huge explosion of just racing towards zero emissions. And that world is so exciting to me. It's funny, I was actually going to mention the University uh, of Calgary, because that also struck me as what an interesting implication that they don't see a future in fossil fuels. If they're not going to send new workers into this industry, it's such a it's such a fascinating decision. Exactly. I think it resonated with a lot of people. So we shared that on our social media yesterday, and it was more popular than our average stuff. So I think people are seeing this as very potent symbolism. Even if you look at polling on, would you recommend that your kids go work in oil and gas? That polling is super low across the country, but even in Alberta, it's not that. Like it's higher than other provinces, but that's where the rubber hits the road. Like you can be someone like Jason Kenney and you can say that oil and gas is the future for decades to come. But if people in conversations behind closed doors at the kitchen table are saying to their kids, no, don't work in this industry. That's when we start getting towards bursting that bubble that's keeping fossil fuels afloat. So if folks want to get more involved uh, in this campaign or support it in, in any way they can, how can they do that? My ask for listeners is go to 350.org slash on fire, sign the petition. That's the way you'll start getting involved in this campaign. 
Uh, so we'll be sending updates to petition signers with new actions. We anticipate that this summer is going to be intense in terms of climate impacts, heat and fire. And so we'll be mobilizing folks to take different actions throughout the summer. So go to 350.org slash on fire and sign the petition. A specific ask for your audience. I'm a listener of the Green Majority. I know that most listeners, likely all of your listeners, are already convinced. And what I said in our conversation won't necessarily be new to you. But to help this campaign right now, we need your voice and we need your stories. So we want to hear from experts. If you're a climate scientist who's listening to this and you want to get in touch, sign the petition for updates, but you can also email 350canada at 350.org if you want to record a short video for the campaign or contribute your story, your perspective on what's happening. We're also looking to hear from people who are experiencing climate impacts on the front lines, so people who've been affected by the fires and people who are fighting them. So anyone who has a story that you want to share as part of this campaign, again, go to 350.org slash onfire and sign the petition to get involved. If you have a burning desire desire to get involved more deeply as a volunteer, email 350Canada at 350.org and I'll, I'll get in touch. Amazing. Thank you so much. Chris Gusson, digital organizer with 350 Canada and the campaign is on fire. Thanks so much. And if I gave you a, a last word, what would you say to our audience? Yeah, I know that you and I were chatting before this about how the fear of these extreme climate impacts can be deflating. So a lot of people are waking up to what's happening. They're seeing the ocean on fire. They're seeing hundreds and hundreds of people dying from extreme heat. And a lot of people go to a really dark place when they see that, understandably. Myself included, it can be really deflating and overwhelming. How are we gonna get through this? So I would say that if you're feeling fear right now, and if you're feeling despair right now, try to channel that into rage because rage is the appropriate emotion right now. And part of this on fire campaign is about rage at the political inaction for decades that brought us to this point, at the greed of the fossil fuel industry that brought us to this point. So if you're feeling sad, it's totally understandable, but do not let yourself sink into despair because the fossil fuel industry is vulnerable and they're scared right now too. I might not feel that way. I might feel that the change that we are talking about is impossible, but it's more possible than ever before. And you know this from working on this podcast for years, the discourse around climate has changed and what people are willing to do and what people are talking about has changed. And so this summer, we have an opportunity to hammer on these goals that we really need, a moratorium on fossil fuel projects, a freeze on current fossil fuel projects, and real just transition legislation, a real transition plan for Canada. So do not let fear overwhelm you as, as hard as that is. Channel your outrage and your anger at the fossil fuel industry and the politicians who still have their backs. We are here with friend of the show once again, Matthew Klippenstein, the regional manager of Western Canada of the Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us again, Matthew. Uh, thanks for having me again, Stefan. And so you've come on a bunch of times to help us think through some of the more uh, technical and engineering aspects of what imagining building a new future will look like. And we're going to get into that in a second. But I first want to start with a more personal question, because you do live out in BC. And over the past few weeks, we have seen just how horrendous the heat wave and the fires have been. And the first question is, how are you doing? How did that go? And has it left you thinking about anything specific? Sure. Yes. Thank you. We are doing okay. I'm very thankful for that. We did, we did manage to stay cool during the pandemic, during, 
during the heat wave, later on top of the pandemic, again, many people were not so fortunate. We did have this odd experience where the schools actually closed down on the Monday, the hottest day in, in the region. And the reason was that the school boards couldn't guarantee the schools would be cool enough for the kids to you know, be in a learning environment. And you, you pull that string a little bit and build any air conditioning or, or heat pumps in these buildings. And why didn't they do that? All oh, because they assumed like 1950 to 1980 temperatures. It never gets too warm in the Metro Vancouver or in British Columbia. Pull a little bit further. And ultimately what you get is this choice for this financial efficiency versus resilience question. What nature tells us, like even photosynthesis after 3 billion years of biological R&D is not optimized for efficiency, it's optimized for resilience. It's optimized so that if a shadow comes over the leaf momentarily, it's still able to do whatever it needs to be done. In a very real sense, the heat wave just, again, reinforced the need for resilience in our planning as opposed to straight line fiscal efficiency which unfortunately, as we all know, is what, what our world has to date been dominated by. For sure. And that trend is something that we talk about often within agriculture of the need to go towards monocultures and really supporting the optimization of total number of crops while decreasing the amount of weather ranges they can survive in. And man, we could talk about that forever because <laughs> um, I truly think that is maybe one of the core, core changes we have to see in the world right. really is that change yeah. towards resilience absolutely and actually to take that metaphor of the monoculture and how fragile it is it works well in certain climates perhaps but it's really devastated when external forces come in i do think that we have had a little bit of business or financial economic monoculture in terms of one philosophy has dominated for the past i don't know 40 years maybe since the reagan came in the 1980s and it, it's done pretty well for its proponents in the last 40 years, but it's totally breaking down. And perhaps in a sense, in a hopeful, positive sense, the fact that it is a brittle monoculture will make it possible to replace with something a bit more pro-social, a bit more benign and uh, more flourishing, which is also more sustainable. Yeah, I'm going to take that hopeful note. We don't have a lot of hopeful notes these days. I'm going to take it. I'm going to love it. Action on this scale, as we've obviously talked about together and also on the show generally, is going to acquire an all-hands-on-deck approach. The commentary often these days is about a scale of a World War II type approach, but really just it's going to require just an unbelievable amount of change and effort from all sectors and all places. And in one place where you've thought about a bunch is, is the difference between retrofitting our current existing environment and building new. And the sort of the tension between that, but also the fact that it sounds like you need both still. But can you expand on that? Sure. What, what I did before joining the Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association is I worked on EV infrastructure rebates for the province of British Columbia. It was a nonprofit, Fraser Basin Council, you know, wonderful folks there. And I did a lot of outreach to individual stratas, townhouses, apartments, workplaces who wanted to put in infrastructure so they could have people charge their electric cars. A wonderful thing. These are retrofits. At the same time, we had excellent progress on the municipal level where cities start to say, look, if you're going to build a new apartment building or a new condo building, townhouse complex, every new parking stall has to be pre-wired so someone can plug in a level two charger without having to put it in afterwards. So there's this combination where you are forging forward with new build and you are at the same time providing support for retrofits because we can't wait until everything turns over in the new build side. Buildings last a long time. And so I think that is one, one approach that we can think of, not just here in the electric vehicle space, but uh, more broadly 
is that we do have to scale up renewables a lot. We will do that. The energy arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards renewables. Borrow from sort of plagiarize a little bit Martin Luther King Jr. But at the same time, we do have other resources. And if we can get them on side with an Aikido flip, then that will help us along the way. Sorry, this was all precipitated by uh, a really cool piece of news from Vancouver saying that not just residential buildings, which is like apartments and condos, but non-residential buildings, whether it's hotels or, or business parks, also have to have about half of their parking stalls pre-wired so it'd be easy and cheap to put in EV chargers. Again, just a wonderful thing on the new build side. That speaks to, I think, the scale of which the infrastructure has to change. Mm-hmm. And this, we see this everywhere. One of the things about hydrogen that, that comes into this conversation is that it solves for some of these much harder places to get rid of coal or, or natural gas. Hydrogen gets you that last 20%. That's the stickiest carbon sometimes and steel processing and stuff like that. That's a whole industry that has to sum up and exist. That's in the hydrogen's context, the difference between the new builds and retrofits is that New builds would probably be something like a green hydrogen, where you have a lot of renewables, you use those to produce hydrogen, and you use those for these hard-to-decarbonize sectors. Uh, Again, if you look at the big picture, most of the reduction in emissions is going to come from wind, solar, and batteries. Hydrogen and the associated technologies like fuel cells are like a sidekick. They're like the Robin to the Batman of those big three guys. And so on the new build side, you have green hydrogen, which will come through a renewables projects, so opportunities for export from Canada. It'd be great to be a clean energy exporting superpower as opposed to a fossil energy exporting superpower. But on the retrofit side, we still have a lot of uh, hydrogen that we use in upgrading oil to make fertilizer. We use natural gas. We, we pull the hydrogen off of that and the CO2 goes in the air. So on the retrofit side, there's a way to view it as, well, You have all this infrastructure for all these hard to decarbonize sectors. If we can pull the CO2 or prevent it from going into atmosphere, we can still use the hydrogen for those cases and then hit the emissions from both sides, both from the the new build, which is again like like green hydrogen through renewables, as well as through retrofits, which is to adapt or tweak or adjust industry, kicking and screaming if need be, so that they can use the hydrogen they need for decarbonizing without the CO2. And so... The BC hydrogen strategy recently came out. Mm -hmm. And obviously, this is the kind of thing that for most of the average person, they're not going to really be able to parse through what Mm -hmm. it means. And so I'm wondering, what stood out to you about this hydrogen strategy? Sure, yeah. So the hydrogen strategy, it it runs about 20 pages. It's got 60 odd recommendations. I think even the executive summary is like three pages. So I guess the one idea I would bring out of it is that it does suggest that we prepare to export low emission hydrogen in some form. And quite possibly the form that it will take will be some sort of low emission ammonia. Ammonia is a liquid. If you cool it just a little bit, it's the second most transported industrial chemical in the world. That said, it has uh, some toxicity issues. So we'll see how the public consent and so forth will work with that. The reason I'm gearing on the export side is BC, with 5 million people, we have one-third the landmass of India. It's like we would want to be exporters of energy and value-added good because we've got a lot of land and not that many people. And we do transport a fair amount of fossil fuels today. It would be easier, I think, to get off of those fossil fuel exports if we're like, hey, we've got these better clean energy exports that we can do, not just electricity, but hydrogen in some form. And we have the perfect test case in Australia here, where Australia has long been a very prominent LNG exporter. Now they're like, hey, that desert, we've got windy areas near the coast. We should just absolutely double and triple down on low emission hydrogen 
queen hydrogen or noble hydrogen in their case, and become dominant there. So in this case, by creating a clean energy export industry, you're taking away the monopoly and the, the slow acting inertia of the existing industries that you have and creating new opportunities. And even as you do that, you are able to help other countries uh, reduce their own emissions. So one of the big things you hear mm -hmm. about both hydrogen and, and one of the big arguments as to why we'll never get to the emissions reductions we need to get to is things like steel production. And there's been a lot of reports recently about mm -hmm. steel production specifically about, I think it's Germany has some real big goals in terms of green steel. There was an announcement here in Ontario about trying to get off coal Alabama for steel. steel. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm curious how you see that. How far down the road is green steel really? Like, where are we? Should we be excited about it today? Is it exciting in three years? Is it exciting in 10? Yeah, okay. You can be excited about green steel today or in about four years because the first green steel facility in the world, this is a steel which is processed using hydrogen to change the iron ore into iron and then make steel subsequently. That's, uh, that's going to be up and running by 2025. And the amount they produce will be fully accounted for by demand from Volvo and Volkswagen and other automakers or the companies who sell branded products and they can afford a modest increase in the price of steel might be, I don't know, like a, a thousand bucks worth of your car now. It's a shockingly small amount. So in the OECD world, the green steel is a great, uh, big, enthusiastic thing for the next 5, 10, 20 years. Our countries are well off enough that we can generally either afford to pay the small premium in, uh, in green steel, pollution-free, relatively pollution-free steel, or we, can, we have the ability to mandate it again because we're prosperous enough. What I have been told and what I've found data-wise is that the majority world is rather price sensitive and going from like a wood-based uh, architecture, getting into uh, dirtier buildings and so forth, they're going to be a lot more price conscious and without perhaps some assistance from us or technology development to make the hydrogen so cheap, it can undercut coal they will probably still be using a lot of coal for steel purposes, metallurgical coal, even for years after they stopped using coal for electricity. So I guess I'd say there's a bit of tempered optimism where we have a great path for it in the OECD world, minority world, the global north. In the global south, still a lot of work to be done to make sure these other countries can industrialize, have better, higher, longer living standards. And at the same time, be able to do that without emitting the, uh, the CO2 associated with coal use for steel. So a little bit sobering, but it's I'm, still I'm, progress. Yeah, I was ready for almost any answer. And so the fact that some will be online sooner rather than later is at least getting us somewhere. And I differentiate problems in climate change into sort of two buckets. One, which is that we just need to throw money at it and it will solve it. And the second is like the ones that have other tied up problems, like mm -hmm. whether it's we don't have the technology to pull it off what we need to do, or it's mm -hmm. it requires actually like culture change, like suburbs and stuff like that. And right. so to hear that it's just the, no, if we just throw a bunch of money at it, we can solve this problem. That's not a bad deal for me. <laughs> I'll take it. That's right. Yeah. It's the lesser of two, two evils almost. Yeah. And again, experts, even people in the renewables field have consistently underestimated how fast renewables have gotten uh, cheaper. And perhaps if we're having this conversation in 2025, 
the cost curves will have changed so that we're a few years closer to ending metallurgical coal use, even in the you know, countries who can't afford a cost premium. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, we're all running out of time, but I, and so I want to give you the last thought. Given where you are coming at the world from all the knowledge you have, what's the sort of thought you'd leave listeners with thinking as they head into this weekend? As they head into the weekend, I guess maybe riffing on this uh, this fact that green steel, we can make it, we're, we're, we're scaling it up now. I guess I would say that however pessimistic the news is and the, the weather outside, and there's, and there's good reason for pessimism there. I think the good news on the climate side, on the tech side, on the social organization and movement side probably doesn't get as much attention or definitely doesn't get as much media attention. But I'd say that is also a very big force to be reckoned with. So we will hear about the, the heat dome and the very serious problem demands absolutely a determined response. At the same time, we won't hear on the news stories the mobilizations that are happening, the stiffening of resolve in municipal councils, the declarations of uh, local climate emergencies. And so uh, I guess, I don't know, having trust in the better angels of human nature among folks you won't hear about on the news because it's all low to the ground. Well, what a perfect way to end it. Thank you so much, Matthew Kubenstein, Regional Manager at Western Canada of the Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association. Always appreciate having your take. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Stefan. Uh, always a pleasure and always great to be on. <laughs>